Well, hello. This is a slightly unusual introduction to our normal podcast because I, I want to give my guest today, Carlos Rangel, an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the Kellogg Foundation that he works for and to set up the conversation that we're going to have. So welcome, Carlos. Tell us a little bit about the WK Kellogg Foundation. David, thank you very much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you here today and to tell you a little bit about the Kellogg Foundation and the work that we do. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation was founded by Will Keith Kellogg, uh, also the founder of the Kellogg Cereal Company, and who then left his Kellogg fortune to the foundation in 1930. The foundation is focused on changing outcomes for children when it comes to education, health, and economic opportunity. And to be able to do that, our experiences led us to recognize that those children are part of families and those families live in communities. And in order for children to do well and have promising, happy, productive futures, we need to be able to support those communities so that they can support the children that live within them. Uh, so now more than ever, we believe that the foundation's focus on racial equity and racial healing is critical to achieve uh, this bright futures that we are looking to create. Well, thank you. And that sets us up nicely for a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago and uh, where we sounded and looked an awful lot younger, I'm sure. But, uh, but thank you for that introduction and here's into the episode. Hello and welcome to the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley and we're here to talk all things leadership. And today my guest is Carlos Rangel. I've been practicing that. He was, he was coaching me earlier. And uh, Carlos comes to us from the uh, W.K. Kellogg Foundation. And this is uh, an interesting conversation because I'm, I'm a little bit in the know as to some of the work that Carlos has been doing. And uh, I thought it would be useful at this time for him to come along and, and share. So, Carlos, welcome. David, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, so am I. So I, I usually start with trying to get people to give me a little mini bio. Tell me about your uh, your leadership career. Uh, you may hear a bit of a, an accent, and it's not that I'm playing with a rival English Premier League team at uh, Liverpool or, or Manchester. It's uh, I grew up in Mexico City and went to school in Michigan and stuck around. Did about 10 years of equity analysis at a, at a high net worth uh, asset manager, registered investment advisor, and then joined the foundation almost 10 years ago now. So I've been there for about 10 years on the investment team. And part of the mission integrates us to uh, also be aware of the work that the foundation is doing and contribute to that as well beyond our finance obligations. So the, and that's kind of interesting. The WK Kellogg Foundation is a, a foundation that supports a, a very real mission around kids. But you're on the investment side, which is really about taking your money and making more of it. That's right. Yes. It's a unique model. I was not too aware of it. It's not something you hear often, but private foundations in the United States, what we do is there is an endowment that funds the operations and the grant making. The foundation usually gives grants about $380 million a year, and it's given over $9 billion in grants in its history. Uh, it turns 90 this June, so uh, we're, we're right on the, on the mark of the foundation's birthday. And 
with that in mind, that we invest money all around the world with the goal of generating profits that then the foundation staff will donate to help causes related to children. And, and you bridged that gap with something. So you came into the Kellogg Foundation to be an investment guy. And you see the mission side on the other side, and, and, and we're going to get to how you bridge this a little bit. But if we start on the investment side, what uh, do you look like your average investment guy? So the, the investment industry is, is um, notoriously not as diverse as one would hope. And if you were to look at the Kellogg Foundation funded a study of the asset management industry last year. In the two, if you were to look at the funnel of talent within the finance industry, starting with entry-level roles that would have a, a, the potential of reaching the C-suite at an organization, uh, if you look at the two senior-most roles, senior VPs and CEOs, 70% of those leaders were white men, 20% were white women, and the remaining 10% of senior leaders were a blend of Black, Latinx, Asian, Native American, and Pacific Islanders. Only 2% of senior leaders in the space are women of color, which... Uh, not surprisingly, the promotion rates for black employees are less than half of what they were for their white peers. Asian employees also experience lower promotion rates. If you look at the qualitative survey information that came out of our study, over 3,000 surveys, almost half of black employees and one-third of Asian employees believe that their race will make it harder to move up. Uh, women uh, leave the financial services industry at a much, much higher rate than men, even though when you look at these surveys, they self-report that they plan to stay in the workforce for the next five years, a similar rate as men do. So as we look at this work, we try to find out, you, know, it's, it's, you look at this, as this data and, and the first question is, why is this happening? So we're highlighting four factors that we think are really relevant to this work. The first one is this idea of uh, the experience of being an only, um, the occurrence of microaggressions, the intersectionality of race and gender, and the opportunity for mentorship and sponsorship. If I could run you through each one for a moment. Uh, the experience of being an only is when an employee consistently finds themselves being the only woman or person of color in a team. Uh, this elevates the level of stress for that employee and creates pressure to perform. In some way, that person represents an entire class of people. So everything <laughs> they say may be under a microscope and they do feel kind of that pressure. I, I go back to my middle school years when I had to do a free throw in a basketball game and I, I, I felt all these eyes on me and that greater pressure for that free throw relative to doing it in my driveway. Um, <laughs> well, that's the kind of position where people come and ask you what everybody who looks like you thinks about this situation because you're the only person that actually looks that way. Absolutely. And I think we've seen a lot of that in social media and in the news um, in the last few weeks when there's been outpouring of, of support for Black Lives Matter and your colleagues perhaps feel either either more comfortable or, uh, uh, or more urgency of asking their black colleagues as to can, uh, for explanations and, and context and, and asking them what to do. And I think that creates additional work for colleagues as well as they're dealing with their own circumstances because it's our, uh, this has been a very stressful news cycle. So I know you started on the first one there, the, the being an only, but if I, if I just take it back a step, the, mm -hmm. um, the foundation's mission is very equity based and has a very strong equity lens. Mm -hmm. And you're sat in the investment side of it, which is actually one of the most diverse teams in the foundation anyway, saying the majority of the people we work with investing this money are not, are all white guys. Yes. And, and yet we have this organizational mission 
which has a real strong equity lens, mm -hmm. this, there's a, um, a disconnect here somewhere along the line, which is why you started to look at some of these, these issues. That's right. So um, there's been a real intentionality about how our team has recruited and how it's been built up from the ground up. So the, the current leader of the team, Joe Wittenberg, joined the foundation in 2009. Uh, Neil Graziano was already part of the team at that point, and uh, soon thereafter, Joel, in early 2010, uh, recruited a, another director of investments, Reggie Sanders, and continued to build a team from that from that point forward. And and it is, as you say, a very diverse team. It's it's that is somewhat unique for the investment industry, and even for our peers at endowments and foundations, there are not that many teams that are as diverse as our team is. Um, and that was meant to be a reflection of the mission and trying to live our values. But it required extra work. It's hard to recruit such a diverse team uh, into our region when uh, perhaps our region is not as diverse as the team that we have. And, and that, that has been a question when we try to recruit people to our team. So that's, that's an, another aspect of trying to get people to Battle Creek, Michigan, where you're based, is a, a challenge if you want in that rich diversity uh, that comes with so. Exactly, exactly. So, so then the foundation does a survey and analysis of what investment folks look like and you start to mm -hmm. identify these four areas that need some attention. The first one you, you just shared with us about mm -hmm. them being the, the only one. Mm -hmm. So the foundation we talk about uh, everybody having their own diversity journal, both at the journey, both internally as an individual and as an organization. Our journey started in the 1960s. At that time, uh, the foundation started funding efforts uh, externally, so maybe not looking internally, but, but started looking at how can we impact diversity efforts outside of the foundation. And through time, then we realized we needed to do diversity efforts internally. Uh, our current CEO, LeJune Montgomery Tabron, was, I believe, the first black employee at the foundation. And 30 years later, she became CEO of the foundation, which is a wonderful story and testament to her great talent and work ethic. And um, and then in 2007 it was a watershed moment for us as an organization because we decided to to make a statement and and uh, explicitly become an anti-racist organization. And what that meant, and all this work is aspirational. We never really arrive at the destination. And I think that that's really important to to be clear about that because we continue to see a lot of places for us to improve. But it's an aspiration that. Um, People should be able to enjoy well-being and equal opportunity in society and that their physical traits should not be a determinant of their experience when it comes to shelter, health access to healthcare services, economic opportunities, education opportunities, uh, and that they shouldn't be subjected to racism or bigotry or, or put in a hierarchy. Because really what racism is, it creates a hierarchy of human value where it says that somebody's life is worth more than somebody else's. And so we believe aspirationally that we need to work every day so that everybody is in the same level field and every human life is worth as much as any other human life. Yeah, and we're, we're recording here at the end of June 2020. So this is very prevalent, the idea of different uh, qualities or, or uh, values of life as we've been hitting a, a strong uh, Black Lives Matter momentum at the moment. I think it's interesting you're saying way back in 2007, the foundation saying we're going to be anti-racist. And a lot of the people I'm working with uh, right now, it's not that they haven't been anti-racist, it's just that they haven't overtly been, they haven't made that kind of statement. And so you're seeing a lot of companies come out and for the first time make a strong anti-racist statement now. Mm -hmm. And and so it, you, know, you had a head start on that as an organization. <laughs> 
Absolutely. We think that uh, as tragic as 2020 has been with, with COVID news and, and with the, the videos that we've seen where, where uh, a number of people have died in, in circumstances where, where that should not have happened, like Ahmaud Aubrey and uh, Michael Brown, if you go all the way back to Ferguson. But we, we're recording more and more in video things that were happening constantly, but were not being recorded. And now we're, we're having to face the brutality of racism and how dehumanizing racism can be for, for both parties. And, and what we're excited about in this moment but be, within the tragedy is that there is now a real palpable sense of, of people wanting to act and, and seeing civil society respond to their companies making public statements and even individuals making public statements. And, and uh, because that's how things change. Things change when we're willing to recognize the humanity in other people and when we start connecting with one another because that, that's when you start uh, you know, seeing the humanity in other people and their solidarity and are willing to, to help each other and no longer uh, think of um, other people as the other and in a group that can right. be uh, treated poorly. Which takes us back to your four things then, doesn't it, really? The, the, because that was part of that class, a classist kind of society that you're seeing in the investment community. Yes. And, and I think as we think about our individual journey, one thing I would like to highlight is that racism is inside all of us and it's around all of us. It, it's something we take in every day. It's in our systems. It's in our structure. It's in our culture. It's constantly, we're constantly being bombarded with reminders of, of racism that we continue to take in. And racism is also inside of us. And so I think an important thing to recognize is that um, you, you can be a good person and be a racist at the same time. And you need to control that urge or control that instinct because it's pre-programmed pre in those and it's fairly hardwired. So it's something we need to continue to, to address. And as we go through some of the factors that I mentioned to you, it, these are not things that only other people are doing. These are things that we could likely be doing because they're a reflex that's been programmed into us and we need to override it. Um, so I mentioned to you this experience of being an only as an example, and that's because as we started talking before, the systems and the structure have provided perhaps less opportunities to certain groups. So you'll see less representative of some groups at the current time mm -hmm. in, in your workplace. Um, and, and so there's the second point I mentioned was microaggressions. And microaggressions are comments or behaviors that create a challenging environment for the recipient. And it could be as direct as hearing demeaning remarks about you or people like you, or needing to provide more evidence of your competence or being mistaken for someone at a much higher, much lower level, for example. And there's stories uh, of, of perhaps doctors working the floor and, and then being confused for janitorial staff, for example, because right. people assume that, or, or uh, other people in the room may assume that mm -hmm. there's a certain look to that staff. Um, and then there's a, a point that has been, uh, for me, really eye-opening as we do this work, which has been the intersection of race and gender. Uh, and that identity adds some complexity to the workplace experience. Uh, the simplest expression of that is that women of color, we just mentioned at the opening of our recording here, that women of color represent less than 2% of senior leadership in finance, in, in the asset management industry, in the study that we did. And that just goes to show uh, what a challenging environment it could be on how often a woman of color may find herself being an only when they're in aggregate, they're only 2% of, of a particular role. So they might be an only person of color and an only woman at the same time. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and I think, you know, and even for me, because as a, as a Latino man, I'm, I'm also white passing. So there is a, um, 
I've enjoyed many of the privileges of looking white and 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 probably uh, uh, representing a lot of what white culture appreciates. And in white dominant culture, business cultures and environments, I tend to do well. I tend to see myself and feel comfortable in them. And the studies that that we saw as we look at the different journeys between black employees, Latinx employees, uh, and Asian employees, um, Latino men tended to do okay in this environment, mostly because it's an ethnicity and not a race. Mm-hmm. You may hear my accent coming through over the microphone, but perhaps from an appearance perspective and a behavior perspective, I would be comfortable in a, in a, in a white business environment. Right. Uh, you know, the last point I'd like to highlight is this idea of mentorship and sponsorship. Um, it's human nature to gravitate and feel more comfortable with people that look like us. In an industry that's white male dominated, that may deny women and people of color invaluable mentorship and also sponsorship opportunities. I want to make sure I highlight both because mm-hmm. mentorship, it seems like already underrepresented groups are getting a lot of mentorship. So people will show in the room and they say, let me tell you how I did it. And here are all these tips and here's all this advice. But then there's no advocacy. So they'll be in a room and they'll tell you one-on-one what to do, but no one's going to open the door or tap you in the shoulder when opportunities come up. Right. And that makes it harder to advance in an organization. So we need to think about both um, at mentorship and sponsorship. Right. So that you know, in the 50s in America, it might be that you know, nephew Joe comes to work for the company, and because he's the nephew, I'm going to make some doors a little easier for him to open. What you're saying is we should be actively doing that for the people of color that are in our organization, or you're looking to actively do that as well in order to to make it easier for them to step up, especially when they're probably an only and uh, probably seen as a group. Yes, exactly. We'd like to create or help others create systems and processes to to enable that behavior because right. it may not be our natural instinct. And in this world where we're all distributed and working from our own homes, or many of us have the fortune of working from home safely, it may be even harder to connect and we may find it easier to reach out to some people versus others. And, so we're talking leadership and you've, you've shared that the studies come out, you've got the data. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here and say, so you're sat on one side of the fence at the foundation, investing the money and seeing this investment world. The other side of the fence has this strong equity based mission. And uh, when you saw that discrepancy, what have you done about that? Absolutely. So uh, knowledge is, is somewhat useless without action. We needed to see, and part of the spark for doing this was that we saw a hunger from our own industry to address this issue. And one of the overriding things I think this this year, and when we were looking at this work, starting this work two or three years ago, is that there's a desire to do something, yet there's also a perhaps a lack of technical knowledge, and I would fall in that camp, and also and perhaps a discomfort, because. Uh, it may be a lot easier to talk about other things than it is to sit in a room and talk about race. Race continues to be one of the most taboo subjects in our society. Um, and so we decided to, as we started talking to some of our external investment partners, our role in the investment team is to hire investment firms outside of the foundation to manage, our, manage the foundation's money. We started to see some of these groups that were really thinking about the question. Some of them are all of them are at different stages of the journey. Some of them have uh, staff members fully dedicated to diversity efforts. Some of the smaller firms don't have the staffing possibilities to do that. And and some of them were uh, were just getting started in that question. And uh, we wanted to create a community of, that we could learn together, share technical expertise together, and also uh, create some accountability as a group. 
and that's the the work that we've been doing since the uh, middle of 2019. So, and, and are you seeing that have an impact already? Are you seeing the level of engagement change the the, the demographics? We are um, thrilled about what's happened so far. <laughs> it's a little felt congratulatory, so I, I, I do feel sad about that. <laughs> want to just knock on wood. We've been, I would say, you know, seeing changes in demographics, we have seen it with the people that started the conversation the earliest with us. So the people that started talking to us about the topic before we even had structure, that were some of the ones that gave us the spark to try this, to try this effort. Um, they've already uh, in, changed the way they recruit. So they've reached out to organizations like Twigo or uh, SEO, for example, that are in the, their charges, their mandate is to bring diverse talent to the business world. And so they'll they'll create mentoring and recruiting opportunities for either undergraduate or graduate students, MBA students. And so the, the, there have been investment partners that already started doing that work. They already had tough conversations with the recruiters about that. That's been an area of learning for them as well. How to manage a recruiter relationship when you want your candidate pool to look different than it looked mm -hmm. in the past. Um, but the commitment, the conversations we're having, we started something called expanding equity workshops. So we have four workshops planned through 2020. Our first one was the first week of March. The second one was the first week of June. And what this, <laughs> yes, and what that, what they were meant to do is, is create, um, as I mentioned, first, the first one, for example, was about creating an assessment. We don't know what we're trying to achieve if we don't know our starting point. And so right. that one, we ended up funding a, an external party to come in and do research and an assessment of each firm. Uh, that's confidential between the firm and the, the participating investment manager and the firm that did the assessment. Mm -hmm. We didn't necessarily need to know those details. The goal was to create that first assessment. And then each firm worked individually with a coach to create a vision for them over the next year. How do they want to move their diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts at the firm? Right. Um, and then they went back to their home base for homework. Um, COVID and the emergency response we had to do from a business perspective has been a challenge for yeah. sure. The firm stayed on it, which was very encouraging. And the second one was, let's take that high level aspiration and break it down into digestible goals. And we have shared a workbook of 23 different initiatives that have been proven to be uh, um, effective at other BEI implementations. We're working, we're breaking that work into four different work streams. The first one's around recruiting, to your point of changing the demographics of the organization. Yep. The second one is about uh, belonging. We call it belonging, but really it's creating a culture of less microaggressions, more mentorship and sponsorship, mm -hmm. things like that where employees can see themselves succeeding, they feel valued and they feel respected. It's a place where they really belong. Um, the third one is about promotion. How do you transform the workplace now so that if you hire diverse talent into the firm, they're thriving at the firm and they see themselves there. How do you make sure that you promote the right people? Um, mm -hmm. And the fourth work stream that we're talking about is this idea of influence. We're all part of communities and an ecosystem. How do we change our behavior so that we impact the ecosystem? Uh, and that's the type of work we're engaging with. We have five firms that volunteer to do this work. We're very encouraged about the work they've done so far and the conversations they're having with us about uh, the uptake at their individual firms. So, and I like the the path that you shared there is one of, hey, I recognize the data. Um, I work for an organization that has this strong mission. 
I can make a bridge between the mission because the Kellogg Foundation wouldn't normally see an asset management firm as being a candidate for the kind of work <laughs> that they do. Uh, yeah. But you've created that bridge because it really overlaps with what the foundation is trying to do, which is the whole uh, the equity mission. And it bridges to the investments because you're working with these people on a daily basis sometimes to make sure the Kellogg Foundation has money. <laughs> and you're also getting them to the table to say, we want the diversity as well. And so help us, to help us come to that table and work out what it is we need to do. So is there other places and resources that you'd recommend for folks that are, are trying to you know, get a handle on this in their own organization? Absolutely. Uh, I think that we, and I can, I can make a list available to you. I would say that social media can have very radicalized tones, but it also, <laughs> similar to what some of your other podcasts have done, I think it also, it's a, it's a valuable resource for education. So I'd be happy to share We've, we've, if you uh, share funded. a list, we'll, we'll post it, tie it to the podcast and the video version and uh, Beyond Humanities uh, um, social media. So. Excellent. Excellent. I'll be happy to share that with you when we wrap up. Oh, smashing. Well, uh, I appreciate your time. Carlos Rangel, who is a director in the investment team at the Kellogg Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan, and is making some strides in, in helping the asset management world become more openly diverse, engaged, and, and giving opportunities for uh, people of color. So uh, I really appreciate you coming and being willing to share it and uh, and um, I continue that good work. Um, so thank you, Carlos. This is the Humanity Leadership Podcast. I'm David Wheatley. I'd like to thank Brian Spencer and Finkel for our opening theme music and uh, please share any feedback and suggestions who you'd like to hear from, any questions you've got. We can always bring Carlos back if you've got more questions. I can be contacted at humanity.com. Like and subscribe. We'll see you next time and stay healthy. Thanks, everybody.